Welcome to the Indie Writer Podcast, where we talk about all things writing and indie publishing. Today, we are excited to talk about horror retellings with Adam McGomber. Adam McGomber is the author of three novels, The White Forest, Jesus and John, and The Ghost Finders, as well as three collections of short stories, My House Gathers Desires, This New and Poisonous Air, and Fantasy Kit. He is a core faculty member in the writing program at Vermont College of Fine Arts, as well as editor-in-chief of the literary magazine Hunger Mountain. Welcome, Adam. I'm so excited to have you. Hey, guys. It's great to be here. <laughs> also joined by co-host Becca Spence Tobias today. And we're just going to dive in a little bit. Adam, I guess to introduce yourself to our audience, could you tell us a little bit about your upcoming book, uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles, and why you chose to retell this story? Um, and maybe just a little overview of the original story and your retelling. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, my, my new novel, it is called Hound of the Baskervilles. So there's no the. Uh, the, the, it, the, the Hound of the Baskervilles is the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle version. So it sets mine you know, apart. It's almost the same title. But um, why I wanted to retell it, um, it has always been a favorite thing of mine. I love kind of occult mystery, supernatural mystery. And even though, you know, Conan Doyle's is not supernatural in the end, um, I don't know, it's always excited me since I was a kid. And I find myself kind of going back to a lot of that imaginative fiction that I read as a kid uh, and wanting to do something with it. So this was my, uh, you know, my take on Hound of the Baskervilles, which is uh, is supernatural in my version uh, and is weird with a capital W, uh, queer uh, and unabashedly erotic, I will say. And I've had the pleasure to read it and it was fantastic. And I, I also have the, yeah, you should, it's great. And I also have the pleasure to read another book of yours, Jesus and John, which is a retelling as well, but of a biblical story. And so I'm really excited to have you on this episode. What do you think it is about retellings in general that speak to you? So I think I have that kind of like postmodern impulse where I want to mess with things. Um, so even when I'm not doing a direct retelling, like, um, you know, the story of the resurrection or uh, how to the Baskervilles, I'm still doing versions of retelling. So I'll take maybe gothic, uh, you know, a gothic romance and I'll put my own spin on it or I'll do, you know, play with the tropes of science fiction, things like that. So uh, I, I like to have a set of toys out in front of me when I write, uh, and I like to play with those toys. That It just excites me. That, I think, is, is why. So I was going to ask, when you're saying that Conan Doyle's is not supernatural, and yours is, and then also you're making it really queer and erotic, how much of retelling for you is, like, putting what you want into an original that was, like, almost perfect for you? Yeah, I think that that's, yes. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, growing up, in, I grew up in a small town in Ohio, you know, a small Christian town, and I didn't really have access to to gay gay anything, gay literature, etc. So, uh, you know, I would read these um, kind of gothic things or, or horror things, and, and I would feel the kind of otherness in them. And that excited me. I like that idea of the other. Um, but I, I think now I do, I want to put myself in that too. So that, so I'm queering those things that I kind of felt were inherently queer in some way to begin with. Yeah. 
Yeah, side note, I grew up in rural West Virginia and also moved to California. Got it. <laughs> I get so, it. Yes, yes. You probably have that other feeling as well. Yep. So this is going to be our Halloween episode, which we're so excited about. So let's go to the other angle and talk about horror and its relationship to retellings for you and what it is about about that, you know, intersection. So, well, for one, I'm a huge Halloween fan. Uh, I love Halloween so much. Uh, I do something. I have a calendar uh, at my house. Basically, I was trying to plan some, one Halloween event every day in October, and it could be small, like watching a movie, or it could be big, like you know, going to a pumpkin patch or whatever. That sounds but... like something I would do, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. And, you know, well, I love horror. I love horror because for me, horror has that ecstatic element to it where you feel like you can kind of be blown out of yourself. So I, I like to feel, you know, like that kind of bigness that horror can give you, really extreme versions of horror. So I, I tried to capture that in Hound of the Baskervilles because I think that, you know, even the original gives me that feeling a bit, you know, kind of the, the, the lonesome moors and the sound of the dog in the distance and the kind of darkness and all of this stuff. It gives you that kind of ecstatic feeling. But I wanted to turn up the volume on that to like a 10. Um, and so that, you know, I, I imbued it with, um, you know, body horror and all kinds of, you know, supernatural horror and things like that, where it really, I think, hits big. And both of the stories of yours that I read are highly visual. And so how did that compare to the original stories? Yeah, I'm curious what that part of your process is like. I think, you know, when I write, I very much see the story in my mind. So it's a very visual experience for me. Um, oftentimes, you know, when I stop writing, I can like, it, it's almost like looking backwards in my head and I can see the characters waiting there for me in a scene, right? Like it's literally that, like it's a real place. Um, I also think, I'll tell this part of the story. I haven't told anybody else this, but I'll tell it to you. Um, before I wrote this book, I had gone through kind of a bad breakup and I had also discovered, uh, that I had low testosterone. And so I started taking a testosterone supplement. And prior to that, I had not been really dreaming for whatever reason. I had not been having dreams. Uh, and it's, when I started taking the testosterone sub supplement, I started to have really extreme vivid dreams. And all of that kind of fell together. And I just suddenly had this idea for Hound of the Baskervilles in my mind. Like I knew what it would look like. And I knew that it was kind of like dark, but bright at the same time. Uh, and all just the, the kind of like strangeness all came together from all of that. Uh, and it was just a really interesting experience. So retellings in general, what has inspired you in the past? Are there any authors that you look to when you were learning the process of retelling? you know, a well-known tale in a new way? Yeah, I mean, for me, again, I'm using the, the toys that Arthur Conan Doyle sets out. Um, if you read his story and then my story, you will see interesting kind of echoes, right? They speak to each other, but my story is extremely different. So you will, you know basically nothing about my story from reading his story. 
Um, and I, I think that my favorite type of retelling, well, I don't know, like, I like things like Wicked, you know, where you have, uh, you know, you, you take the point of view of the Wicked Witch and you show the other side. But I also like something that really just like dements the original, that makes it so strange. Um, I'm thinking about the filmmaker Guy Madden, uh, Canadian filmmaker, made a movie called My Winnipeg, which is awesome. Um, but he also did this ballet version of Dracula. Uh, so it's this filmed kind of gritty black and white version of, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And it's just like, it's so cool to see it and, and so ecstatic as well. Um, so I think that's the kind of thing that I want. I want such a heavy filter on the thing that it is still recognizable, but it just becomes so odd, right? And, and maybe it gives you something like or at least it gives me something of the spiritual experience that I was having when reading the original. But it's it's very much a mix of like me, the artist, with like how I perceived um, the, the the original version versus what the original version actually is. How about you? Do you have do you guys have re favorite retellings? Not particularly, but right now I'm reading the Hacienda by Isabel Cañas, mm. which is like a Mexican revolution setting telling of yep. Rebecca and it's so awesome it's so good um it's very like Mexican gothic but like less about colonial more the other side of colonialism it's really awesome um what about you Jackie you know nothing's immediately coming to mind except that I was just in New York last week and we got to see Into the Woods on Broadway and so that was you know really fun that was all the fairy tale retellings crossing um, but I would like to get into the genre more, and I, I really do enjoy just the, um, yeah, retelling from a different character's point of view, and then also, yeah, queering up stories and, um, you know, switching up protagonists, I think. It's really appealing to me. Yeah, when you brought up fairy tales just now, it made me think about Angela Carter. Um, Angela Carter's book, The Bloody Chamber, is one of my kind of like seminal texts for uh, like inspiration. Um, but basically, she retold uh, a bunch of fairy tales in the most kind of like amazing and, and ornate way. So that's one I would check out if you're interested in like retellings. So I've seen a lot of people complain on Twitter that um, marginalized authors will get a lot of feedback saying like this has been done before like we have enough retellings of beauty and the beast or whatever it is do you have but they're like yeah but there isn't a black one or there isn't a queer one or whatever have, did you experience that at all i haven't experienced that kind of feedback um but i will say i just don't imagine that we could have enough of those <laughs> you know i i think that again uh you know the, these things are they exist uh, and, and it is so much fun to manipulate them and modernize them, make them contemporary, make them speak in a contemporary way, make them say something new. Uh, and again, I, I think that that echo is so fun, like how you can play off of the original, um, which obviously, you know, the Hunt of the Baskervilles having <laughs> dated views of various things at this point. Well, how can you update them and how can you disrupt them? How can you explode them? Um, so that to me is all, all very exciting. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that we could have enough of those. Yeah, I just want to clarify. I agree with you. <laughs> this is not feedback from me. <laughs> this is things that people say they no, hear from agents and editors. 
So I'd love to talk a little bit about your process, dive in a little deeper. So, you know, you said that you, you know, you see a lot in images and your characters are speaking to you, but what do the nuts and bolts of that, that look like when you first set out to write a story? Do you outline the entire thing? Do you just kind of work in the sections that call to you at the moment and then piece it all together? How does Adam McComber write? Yeah, I definitely don't outline it. So I can I can kind of speak to how Hound of the Baskervilles was written, which was unusual uh, in terms of how I write usually. Um, so we put it out on Kindle Vela, uh, which is a kind of platform where you can put chapters of things out. Um, so we put it out one chapter at a time. So when I started writing... You know, I was I was thinking, really thinking about it chapter by chapter. And I think when we started publishing it, I had maybe five chapters written. And then I had to continue to write the chapters without necessarily being able to change things that I had written in the previous chapters, which was actually a super thrilling experience. Like usually you can go back and, you know, delete, change a character, get rid of a character, those kinds of things. But I just had to like continue working forward. Um, and it was it was super thrilling. And I was nervous that it wouldn't come together, that it wouldn't work, you know. Uh, and then, of course, well, it, it did work. And I was like, wow, that that's very cool. I don't know if I could ever do that again, actually. It was like, but eventually, you know, for the actual published book, you know, that's, that's goes beyond Kindle Vela, I did go back and rewrite. Uh, so, so the, uh, the Kindle Vela version is a different version than what you would get if you bought, um, you know, the, the book version. I think the book version is better in the end, but the, the Kindle Vela version was, was super exciting. And I really loved having to sit down and essentially produce a chapter. Um, yeah, so so there is there is no plan. I'll often know something about the end when I start writing um, because that helps me write kind of towards something. Uh, otherwise, you know, when you write, there's so many possible paths to take. It can be very frustrating, especially if you're you know just making something up whole cloth. Um, you know, you kind of have to know in the general direction that you, that you're going to go. But other than that, I like to surprise myself. I'm curious more about Vela. Um, were you receiving feedback from readers as you were putting it out? And do you feel like that influenced the way you went about it? You know, I got feedback from my editor chapter by chapter. So he would edit the chapter and then, you know, I would do a rewrite and then we would put it up. Um, it wasn't, uh, you know, I don't feel like I got a lot of feedback from readers, though. That didn't have any influence on it. But um, yeah, just just the editor uh, and the few friends that I would allow to, my few literary friends that I allowed to read things, uh, they, they were giving feedback. And um, I don't know, in terms of things kind of come out of my imagination and it's hard for me to kind of change them according to the will of others. So I'm just like, well, no, that's it, I'm afraid. <laughs> so that's kind of how I, how I do it, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm curious what changed um, between the Kindle Vela version and the book version? Like, what did you learn? Largely, the story is intact. It's the same story. But I think that uh, in places, you know, as, as you guys know, you have to just enrich things, embellish things, get the sensory world there. Uh, and I think because I was writing quickly, sometimes the sensory world uh, was not appearing as much as I wanted. So I think I, I more uh, uh, fully enhanced the sight, smell, sound, touch of the novel. Um, yeah, and I, I think mainly it was just smoothing things out and making things connect properly. Because when I was thinking about the Vela version, they were each very much like their own thing. And then when you start 
start reading it in a book, you know, you can finish a chapter and then move directly on to the next chapter, and you want a, a clear transition, a smooth transition. So a lot of it was just that, is making it feel very connected. Um, though, obviously, if you were reading it later on Kindle, Kindle Bella, you could read it in the same way. But my experience as an author was that I was writing these, like, they weren't short stories exactly, but they felt like their own entity. And then we would post that and post the next one and post the next one. Um, yeah. Oh, that's really fascinating. It kind of sounds like my worst nightmare. It, honestly, it was scary. It was honestly <laughs> scary um, because really you don't like, like when you start writing a novel, you really don't know if you can finish the novel, right? You don't know if there will be enough. You know if you have the energy and then the creative force but this like really actually made me think well okay i have to finish it you know i started it and i'm not just gonna let this uh you know fragment exist out there so yeah but it was scary yeah and if you're not an outliner like i don't write in a linear fashion so that's really interesting if maybe that hadn't been your practice before to suddenly have to write from beginning to end. I am usually when I'm writing a novel I'm usually linear so that that actually is a good thing I guess but um yes because that would be really hard if I was writing it in in, uh, in a different order but yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the logistics of permission or legality like do you have to wait until things are in the public domain before you expressly do a retelling? Yes. Hound of the Baskervilles is in public domain. Uh, I am not the best at talking about that kind of stuff, honestly, but I know it is. Uh, so that that is, you know, you can use uh, that kind of material. Yeah. But um, I think, yeah, you have to be careful, right, uh, in terms of, of doing um, doing retellings. So but again, I'm, I'm not the best with that uh, with that info. Do you maybe have resources for folks who who, who are kind of trying to balance like retelling versus plagiarism oh. <laughs> um, or just yeah, well, like a knock, maybe not plagiarism, just like knockoffs versus retelling. <laughs> no, that I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, I mean, I think that it kind of blurs together, right? Like if you think about the notion of fan fiction, um, I have a friend who loves like Harry Potter fan fiction and reads it all the time, you know, and fan fiction that that makes, um, you know, Harry and Draco gay, their boyfriends, whatever, those kinds of things. Um, that is a version of a retelling, isn't it? And, and some people really, really enjoy that. And again, it's kind of playing with the toys of the world. I think that in order... I don't know, like how, how to make it uh, a, a retelling uh, versus, uh, I don't know, hmm. In my mind, I think it's about the self and you have to be putting um, something authentic and true about you, about your own kind of lived experience. It has to go in there uh, and it has to um, illuminate the original in some way. And I think that's the thing that makes it literary. Uh, you know, you're bringing something of, of that self, of, of your, you know, your desire, your feelings, you're putting it inside of this machine and seeing what happens. So for me, that's, that's part of, again, what's fun about that retelling. I'll just chime in with a quick resource that I know, which is that if you want to check to see if a story is in the public domain, Project Gutenberg is a great resource. Um, you know, whether you want to do a retelling or you just want to use a longer quote, like I used so many Les Mis quotes in my first novel and that was permissible because it was in yep. the public domain. Um, so that's a great way to check. 
Yeah, it's it, it. Another thing that's tricky is like you know Arthur Conan Doyle has such great descriptions of Baskerville Hall, um, but you can't use any of those descriptions, right? So you have to come up with your own descriptions for Baskerville Hall. So that was uh, that was exciting uh, to to try to do that. Yeah. Can you tell, talk a little more about that? Like, what was that process for you, and um, and other things like that? Like, what what did you shift? Where did you take you know permission to like to push setting or things other than character? So I have this version of, uh, well, it's all of, I, actually, I think it's all of the novels of Sherlock, or of Arthur Conan Doyle, the Sherlock Holmes novels. And in the back, it has an appendix. Uh, and one of the appendices talks about um, what houses he might have used as the model for, ba for Baskerville Hall. So I did research on all of those houses because then you can find all kinds of interesting, you know, architectural elements and things like that. And you can look at pictures. Um, so it's not merely borrowing from, um, you know, the Conan Doyle text. You're looking at maybe what his text uh, was that he was using, right? Um, I have a similar thing. Um, you can buy Bram Stoker's writing notes for Dracula, uh, and it's amazing. It just shows you like all the research that he was doing, and then you can go back and do offshoots of that research. Um, and so again, you're kind of making your own thing, but basing it on what they were looking at. That's so cool. I, I do not write horror, but that makes me want to. Um, <laughs> speaking yeah. of not writing horror, um, do you have any tips for people who are just starting out in the genre? Like, how do you make something scary? I know that's a huge question. That is a hard question. Um, okay. So I, one thing that I notice that, that people will do when they're, uh, just starting out writing horror or, or science fiction or fantasy is they borrow too heavily on pre-existing tropes. So if I were going to write a vampire story, I would probably never use the word vampire. Or if I was going to write a werewolf story, I would never use the word werewolf. So I would say, don't lean too heavily on the things that already exist, but feel like you have to figure out what it feels like to actually be that thing, to inhabit that thing, and then kind of write from the inside out. So I always write a very kind of psychological horror fiction. So you kind of try to like place yourself inside of, of that thing or in that environment, and then really feel your way into it rather than coming from the outside in like, oh, I'm going to tell a vampire story and it's going to be just like Twilight or something like that, right? That's that's very outside in. Um, but you, So it, it's the same kind of thing I was feeling saying before, like you have to kind of um, experience the self through that lens and then that's what you put down on the page. How to make something scary is really tricky. Um, I was just talking to a friend about um, Stephen King, um, Salem's Lot and The Shining and why those things are scary. Uh, and we were talking about how Stephen King is super good at describing dead people. And those can be actual dead people or the living dead. Um, but if you think about like the, the woman in the bathtub in The Shining or the boy who's floating outside the window in Salem's Lot, um, those kinds of things, they're so well described. And I think that we as humans can connect to them because we can imagine you know, being dead or seeing a dead person and what kind of like disturbing feeling that would give. And then if they move around, well, that's incredibly disturbing, right? So um, the author M.R. James, M. Period R. Period James, uh, is one of my, he, he's a Victorian uh, ghost story writer. He would write ghost stories for Christmas. He has some of the scariest descriptions of 
kind of dead things or otherworldly things. Um, and I, I do think when I read Stephen King, especially in The Shining, I can see um, echoes of M.R. James. So I think one thing to do is really read things that scare you and try to take them apart and see well, what is it that's actually in the description that is making this thing scary, right? So can we go on a tiny little um, sentient places tangent, Adam? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, I wrote my critical thesis on sentient and interactive places as characters in horror and speculative fiction. And it's also a topic that Adam kind of plays with. So I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that topic and why that's why do you think that calls to you? So I really like folk horror and that's F-O-L-K. It's hard to say folk horror. Um, and folk horror, the environment, the natural environment is haunted in some way, right? There are things buried under the ground or, you know, um, we have ancient stone circles, Stonehenge and things like that. The past very much inhabits the present uh, in folk horror. That really, really excites me. Um, and I also love the idea of haunted houses. That's the same kind of thing, a sentient place. Uh, it is, you know, you can walk into it. It's a physical space, but then there's something behind that, the scrim of reality, right? You can kind of like, if you could peer, you know, behind the walls, you would see some kind of like intelligence there. Uh, and I think I like that partly because I feel like it's true. When you walk into an old house or when you walk into a ruin, I particularly, I can feel the past there. And that feeling, it always excites me and it kind of creeps me out at the same time. Like I can feel almost like all the things that have happened there. I'm not saying that I have some kind of psychic connection to those things, but I can feel that kind of like, um, the, the kind of something seeping out from the cracks. So yeah, I oftentimes uh, will take a house or a landscape and I'll try to imbue it um, with with that uh, that feeling in my own writing, right? The kind of layers. Um, but what about you, Jackie? I'd love to hear from you about that because you, you wrote about that. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And for mine, I was trying to take that haunted house concept because that's what people are familiar with and then just zoom out to see who else is doing that well in science fiction and horror. And it was really fascinating because I was trying to make, I was trying to select only places that were, you know, objectively interacting back with their characters. Mm -hmm. And so there really are not a ton, um, but I did discover a few, one of my favorites, which I'll recommend to you, Adam, and we'll see if we keep all of this in the podcast that I just loved was Follow Me to Ground by Sue Rainsford. Oh yeah. And the ground cool. itself is, you know, a sentient character. And I think that it's similar to you where it calls to me because there's only so much history that a person can have lived through, but suddenly you're including, you know, a place as a character and, and you have hundreds or thousands of years of, you know, energy and experience and laying witness to things. And so I think that that's a big part of that that fascinates me. And Octavia Butler does it a lot, I realize, like with her sentient spaceships. Yeah. Um, and, and other locations. And so that's really fun just to see. And then of course the Overlook Hotel. Right. And, and I love the idea too, uh, with stories where it's not a ghost, like it's not a human thing that is haunting the place. It is the place itself that is doing the haunting, right? Those are my kind of 
favorite things. Um, that idea that, you know, that there's this intelligence inside of the house or inside of the landscape and it isn't human. It's something beyond human. Cause I think the overlook is like that, you know, if we're talking about the shining, um, it has ghosts in it, but it also has its own agenda and that's, that's super fun. Um, yeah. So I'm so glad I'm reading the Hacienda yeah. right now. I, I just put it in the chat because I think you would both really love it. Um, it's exactly what you're talking about. The, so there's like a priest who does kind of have the sense and he's like, oh, bad feelings get stuck in the house and I can feel them building up and they get evil. But then it kind of flips it and he's like, but this isn't that. This, <laughs> this, this house, <laughs> this is actually evil. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, is, is the house, um, you know, channeling the motivations of others and acting on that or does it have its own motivations? And it's hard That's to right. say, like, so you think of Hill House and it's the characters differ on what they think and whether or not the house has its own motivations. And you as a reader are left being like, I don't actually have an answer. It could be. Yeah. And that's exciting, right? It creates it creates that feeling of slipperiness where you can't be sure, right? Is it is it just the house, uh, the bad vibes of the house or is it something more? Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, just the psychological horror and the body horror, which is what I really feel drawn to lately. And I think it really is that kind of untethered feeling in all of that that makes something scary to me more than maybe a slasher flick or, you know, traditional um, what we think of as a culture when we think of horror. I think it's it's more that feeling of being out of control with body horror or psychological horror that that, uh, I don't know, really speaks to me. So it's fun. Yeah. Though I will say, speaking of speaking of the slasher, I just saw Halloween Ends, and I thought it was so beautiful. It's it's like a dark romance. Uh, I highly recommend it. It just gives all the feels. Um, it's good. Oh, that's great. Well, maybe since this is coming out on Halloween, we can do a fun little tangent. Do you all have any other um, you know horror things that you recommend, either books or movies, this spooky season? I have so many, it's hard to pick. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a, such an intense question for me. I don't know, Becca, you have anything to start out with? Oh, you don't read horror, I'm not right. like a huge horror reader or writer. I, <laughs> so I grew up like as a very anxious person. And I was like, I, I watched The Exorcist when I was 12 and was like, I don't need <laughs> more to be afraid of. I'm already terrified of everything. But I have found, speaking of body horror, that since becoming a mother and Jackie, I don't know if you'll relate to this. Like I have like connected more to like that very like vulnerable, like physically vulnerable sense of, I, yeah, I'm trying to think about how to articulate it. So I'm just, I'm, I'm beginning my journey where I actually am like, I can see how it's, yeah, I don't know. Come back to me. I'll, I hear what you're saying, though. I feel like that's a big part of it for me is motherhood and then like having an autoimmune disease. And that's why body horror appeals to me is it, it really is cathartic in that sense of not necessarily always being in control of your own body. And, you know, isn't a pregnancy and motherhood right. and birth like the like original body horror? Being ripped apart, have, having like the boundaries between me and another body yeah. Like, yeah. questioned. It's... Yeah, and I think horror that crosses a lot with dystopian, which is, you know, generally what I talk about, but in that it's going to be really cathartic for some readers and writers and others just aren't going to want anything to do with it. And it's going to cause them a lot of anxiety. And I think we're writing for people that that enjoy these genres and find them cathartic to read. Yeah. 
I'll recommend something fun for Halloween uh, if, the, if the listeners want to want to approach it. Um, it's called WNUF Halloween Special, and it's one of my favorite things. Uh, it's a it's a filmmaker who basically made a newscast from the 1980s, and it looks just like a newscast from the 1980s. And they have a, a live. Uh, investigation of a haunted house going on, okay, during the newscast, and everything gets completely out of control. And it also comes complete with all these commercials from the 1980s, like they take commercial breaks and things. So WNUF uh, Halloween special, uh, highly recommend, super fun, like kind of obscure uh, horror movie. Um, another another great, um, I'm thinking a lot about babysitter horror recently, like where the babysitter is alone in the house. Um, house of the Devil by Ty West. It's a, it's a movie by Ty West. Uh, it's a really great spin on, on, on the babysitter story. Well, I'm curious, is there, do you have a Hound of the Baskervilles handy? Would you be willing to share a reading with our audience? Do I do? Okay, so uh, I'm going to read to you. Um, this is starts on page 68 in the book, uh, and this is where Dr. Watson, who is essentially alone uh, here, um, Sherlock Holmes is is back in London. Watson has been sent ahead to do the investigation, and this is his first encounter um, with the Hound. Uh, so here we go. It's then I hear a sound from the bog. A long, low cry, mournful. It swells, rising finally to a howl. It is the same sound I heard last evening by the megalith, only this time it's much closer. Something rustles the sedges before me, and I know I must flee. I must find my way to the road, to safety. I spot a nearby island of firm ground and leap to it, avoiding the quicksand of the bog. I draw my pistol from my pocket. The cry comes again, a keening. I turn to look, and there in the mists I see. How do I describe it? It is not a dog, no. It is sometimes a dog, a large grayish hound with muscled flanks and a menacing jaw. But it will not hold its shape. Soon it is like a man, lean and strong with wiry hair. The man ambles on hands and feet, turning its, his head in the mist, left and then right, perhaps scenting the air, searching for prey. Now he has a doggish face, long muzzle, pointed ears, and even as I watch, the figure folds and changes once again, swelling and contracting like a lung. It is a rent in the air, a dark wound that opens and closes. I see a dog and a man inside the wound. I see two dogs. I see two men. They embrace. They are all tangled. They lift their heads and howl at the dead gray sky. I raise my pistol, trembling. The wound opens further, folding back its edges like lips. And the wound looks at me, hound of the Baskervilles, Hound of us all, eyes like dark fissures, holes that blot out the sky, then a ravening scream, and it runs like a dog and a man and a wound, 
howling, mad. I stumble backward, trying to flee, and suddenly I am no longer on the island. I am neck deep in the bog itself. I struggle, trying to find purchase in the peat, but the bog shifts, sucking at me, drawing me down. All firmness breaks away. Fetid water flows into my mouth, my nose. I cough and spit, but there is still more water, bitter taste, and I feel the shadow over me, god of hell, swelling and collapsing, jaws shining, eyes red. It stares down at me, old man and dying man, all alone, water in my mouth, water in my throat. I cry out, choking. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. Jackie, I would like to try to answer your question again. <laughs> because I've been like kind of basking in it. Um, what I was getting at is the horror that I've read lately is like not only body horror, but like motherhood specific body horror. So I would like to recommend <laughs> The Need by Helen Phillips and also Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. Um, and I think what really both appeals- fantastic. I read both as well. Oh, <laughs> and like felt both of them so viscerally. Um, and I think like what really appealed to me about it is that I was finally able to like connect with them, connect with the genre, like not in a, oh, here's something else to be afraid of, but in like these, there are all these kind of like amorphous fears that come along with being a parent. And like, this gives me like, a tangible face or like feel something tangible to like put those fears onto. It's not mm -hmm. as, it's not like a blob. It's like, oh, I'm going to turn into a werewolf. Not like I'm losing myself. <laughs> so yes, right. both of those I would recommend. Yeah. And both so different. I feel like the need was like very like psychological horror, dark. And then Night Bitch just has so much comedy, you know, mixed in with it. And also, you know, the visceral, like, I don't always want to be a mother. And sometimes I just want to be feral and run through the woods. Um, and that's okay. I can still be a good mother and, like, you know, be in touch with my primal side. Um, Adam, thank you so much. I, I always feel this when someone I know has written a book and I read it first and then I get to hear them read it. Because, you know, sometimes we, we read a little differently and I just, I love hearing your voice, you know, along with the story and just, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Jackie. Oh, so good. Oh, I was going to recommend on that, on that uh, thread with the need and uh, night bitch is the book of X, which won the Shirley Jackson award mm. a few years ago. Oh. And I read that last semester and it, I think has become my favorite book like of all time. So yes it's awesome i love that book and then also uh, short stories if you're looking for a uh, short stories um amelia gray's oh gut shot all short stories that are in the body horror genre and the cover is nice. just absolutely gorgeous so just go look at the cover if you need to see some beautiful art <laughs> well we usually try to dive in you know just to writing practice in general since everyone listening um you know, is most of us are indie indie writers. Can you just share, Adam, I know you're a wealth of information because you are a terrific advisor who I've gotten to experience firsthand, but just general writing resources in general that you turn to frequently and that you would recommend. It doesn't have to be horror or retelling specific, just as a writer, what do you find yourself turning to? 
Yeah, I think for me, I mean, in terms of craft, I always go back to Janet Burroway's writing fiction. Um, it's it's uh, it's like the platonic ideal of the craft book, like all other craft books kind of emanate from it, I always feel. Um, and I, I actually, when I was uh, writing or revising Jesus and John, which is the novel that came out before Hound of the Baskervilles, I went back and just reread that entire craft book. And it really does illuminate certain things. It will remind you of things you totally already know, but that you forget in the process of writing. Uh, and you need something like that to, to, to make you think, oh, yeah, 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 I do, I do need like concrete phys physical detail here, those, those kinds of things. Um, so, so I love that. Um, I love also reading theory, uh, and, and it can be cultural theory or, or whatever, but I feel like that really helps me expand my own imagination. So we are all kind of like limited with a set of our own thoughts and, and the places, the kind of paths our imagination always travels. But a great one for me uh, in terms of horror is Mark Fisher's book called The Weird and the Eerie, uh, where he basically goes through those two concepts, like what makes something weird and what makes something eerie. Uh, and he has really interesting discussions um, throughout. And, and many of the texts we've been talking about would fit into those, um, into those concepts. But that, to me, allows me to think better about my own representations uh, in my writing and, like, kind of how to do them better if I, if I think about them through that kind of cultural lens. Yeah, so th those are two things that I would recommend, just in terms of craft, uh, but also expanding, expanding oneself by reading um, by reading some theory and, and thinking about culture at large. And I'll echo Mark Fisher's Weird and the Eerie because I read that with you. And um, yeah, it was just really illuminating to help me kind of sort through what exactly I was trying to write and, you know, how to define it and how to actually find the right, you know, books to be in conversation with. Yeah. I think yeah, that's right. So I, I think a lot about genre and about category and how to break genre and category. But first, you have to know what the genre and the category is. So that is one of those books that that really helps with that. Um, I've also been reading a lot of folk horror. Um, Adam Scovel, S-C-O-V-E-L-L, -L, has a great um, folk horror uh, kind of just, you know, a cultural analysis of folk horror, which I'm blanking on the title right now, but that's his name. Um, yeah, so I, I read pretty wild widely in, uh, in, in, you know, cultural theory, I guess. All right. Well, Adam, this was a pleasure to have you on. I love chatting with you. And um, before we jump off, can you let everyone know what you're working on next and how to keep up with you and your writing? Sure. Um, so I've been writing um, flash fiction. You know, I put out a book of kind of flash and experimental fiction called Fantasy Kit um, that came out with uh, Black Lawrence Press earlier this year. And I just love the form. I love flash and I love the, the, um, the ways uh, that, you know, it's possible to experiment with flash, um, you know, just the different directions you can go. Um, you know, as you said, I'm the editor of, of Hunger Mountain, uh, Vermont College of Fine Arts, and I love when people send me flash. So if anybody out there has some really cool, like, um, horror, uh, flash, uh, or not horror flash, just really cool flash in general, I'm always excited to read some flash. Um, I am on Twitter, so you can just, I'm Adam McComber on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I tend to stay away from the social medias in general. <laughs> So I'm not very good about that, actually. But yeah, I, I exist on Twitter, I guess. 
Thanks for listening to the Indie Writer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for the continued support. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing. Happy writing.